You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So today we have got a incredibly rich passage, verse 12 through 26 of chapter one. And, and let me just jump into this text by saying something that when I say it, it I feel like it intrigues people and it takes people a minute to, to, to consider, do I agree with him or not agree with him? But I think it's true. And so I keep saying it. Here's the statement. You and I, where we find ourselves, this time and place, the context that you're in, that I'm in, that we're living our life in right now, you and I live in one of the most dangerous places in the world for a follower of Jesus to live. Now, that's not because, you know, an angry mob is gonna show up at your door tomorrow and drag you out of your home and beat you to death. That's probably not going, that does happen in parts of the world, but that's probably not going to be your story here. That, that's not the reason that it's dangerous. We live in one of the most dangerous places in the world for a follower of Jesus to live because what so often passes as Christianity in our culture is so far from how the Bible describes it. That's why it is a dangerous place to, to live in. We live in a culture that just generally speaking, you just draw like a hundred mile circle around where, where our houses are in this, this general area. We live in a culture that generally embraces religious activity, generally respects church going, uh, generally embraces the Bible, but all in all, and just kind of by and large, misses the primary point, which is Jesus. That, that's kind of the area that we live in and the, and the space that we're doing our life in. And by the way, this is why the term Christian gets so much mileage in our culture. It's like, who isn't a Christian, right? I mean, every, everybody, just generally speaking, kind of just, the, the name has just kind of stuck onto them in, in some way, regardless of how little love for Jesus exists in their heart or how little conformity their lives have to Jesus. Uh, Charles Spurgeon illustrated this um, back in his day. He, he said this, he said, there was a boy in the streets of England selling hot apple pies. And the boy kept crying out, hot apple pies, hot apple pies. And a man bought one and then found that the hot apple pie was cold. So the man looked at the boy and, and asked the boy, why did you call these things hot apple pies? They're not hot apple pies. And the boy replied, I, I don't know. That's just the name they go by. And I think that's, that, that illustrates a lot of the danger of our culture. That somewhere along the way, the name that we go by has been divorced from how the Bible describes the name. Like, like this is the problem that, that we have in our culture. Where, where, you know, it's a culture where by and large, Jesus is admired, but he just isn't really followed. By and large, he's respected, but just generally not submitted to. Generally speaking, he's given a special place in our culture, but there's just very little pursuit of Jesus in our culture. He's a great teacher. Many people consider him that in, in our area, right? He's a great teacher, but just not a great treasure for a lot of people. And that sort of a cultural thing is like the air we all breathe. And it's so easy to get sucked into that. Now, here's the good news. Jesus knows that. He, he knows where we live, the time and place we live, the particular hangups of our culture, the danger of our cultures, and to serve us and to help us, he has given us the book of Philippians. And in particular, he has given us this passage that we're working through this morning. Now, remember, Philippians is a letter. The Philippian church has sent an offering and, a, and, a, and they've gathered money to give to Paul to help supply his needs while he's in Rome in prison. And Epaphroditus has delivered that, that offering and that help from the Philippian church to Paul. Then Paul sends a letter, this letter that we're reading, back through Epaphroditus to the church in Philippi. So verses one and two 
uh, Paul greets the church in Philippi in verses three through 11. And by the way, did Jimmy not do a great job with that last week? If you were here, just such a great job. And so in, in verses three through 11, uh, Paul encourages the church in Philippi. He expresses his deep affection for them. I mean, just love, gratitude, appreciation, just have a way of gushing out of verses three through 11. He prays for them in verses nine through 11. And now we get to our passage this morning, 12 through 26. And this is the point in the letter where Paul is going to give the church in Philippi a personal update. He's just, he's just trying to fill them in. This, this is how life is going for me. This is what's been happening in me. He's just trying to fill in the details of what's going on in his life. And one of the things I love so much about this text and so much about this personal update is that in a way it, it allows us to... to it allows us to see all the way into Paul's heart. In this personal update, Paul is just opening up his heart and saying, I wanna give you a view as to what's going on inside of me. I wanna open up my heart and allow you to peer all the way down in it and see all the way down to the bedrock of my life. Like what's down there at the foundational levels, the motives, the purpose, the meaning. Like when I think about my life, I want you to see what's going on deep down in me that's motivating and animating and energizing and sustaining the life that I'm living for Jesus. I want you to see that. This is what Paul's doing in this personal update. And here is what we find when we look all the way down into the heart of Paul in these, uh, in, you know, in these particular verses, what we find deep down there in his heart is that Paul is a man that is consumed with Jesus. That's what you find in this passage. In this personal update, you find a man who is consumed with the person of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the glory and fame of Jesus. That's what you find in Paul. For Paul, it really is all about Jesus. It really is all about the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. It really is all about the renown and fame of Jesus. And you see this echo throughout this passage. Let me just give you a quick tour of it. In verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There is Paul's aim. There it is. It's gospel advancement. That, that word advance has the imagery of, of cutting a path through a jungle. And Paul's like, this is, this is what I wake up for. This is what I'm living for. This is, this is what the deepest concerns of my life are attached to. I wanna see the gospel go forth. I wanna see the gospel advance. I wanna see the gospel make it to new places and to, and to infiltrate new hearts. This is what I wanna see. This is the concern of my life. This is the passion of my life. This is the ambition of my life. Paul is a man who is, who is just willing to wring his life out for gospel advancement. That is what we find in verse 12. But then you get to verse 18. Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. There it is again. There's the ambition of his, of his life. As long as Jesus is heralded, Paul is saying, I'm a happy man. As long as Jesus is lift up and proclaimed, as long as he is seen and savored, as long as he is preached as our greatest good, as the highest treasure, then my heart's full. I don't care what's happening to me as long as that's happening for Jesus. I am a content, happy man. Look at verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope, Paul says, that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I mean, who talks that way? What friend do you have right now that talks like that? 
that just says, I don't care if I live or, or if I die, the number one objective of my life, like the thing that my life is wrapped around, the thing that I want, the ambition of my life has nothing to do with my personal comfort. It has everything to do with the honor and renown and fame of Jesus. Th that's Paul. I love how one commentator says it. He says it this way. In Philippians 1.20, Paul is saying this, my body will be, regardless, if I live, if I die, it, whatever happens to me, my body will be the theater in which God's glory is displayed. That, that's Paul. Regardless of what happens to him, he lives, he dies, or somewhere in between, his main objective is my life is going to be the theater. It's going to be the stage on which the glory of God is displayed. You see it again in Philippians 1.21. I think in a lot of ways, Philippians 1.21 is the heart of the passage. Philippians 1.21 is the answer to how in life or death do you bring honor to Jesus? Here's the answer to that. Here's how you do that. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how we honor Jesus. If I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's gain. This is, this is how Paul goes about doing that. And it's again, it's like, who, who talks like that? Who goes around thinking like to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is Paul opening his heart and showing us, this is why I exist. This is what he's showing us in 121. This is, this is why I get out of bed. This is what drives me. It's what animates me. It's what defines me. My life is consumed with the person of Jesus. It's just consumed with Jesus. The overarching desire of my life is Jesus. Jesus, his fame, his renown, the advancement of his gospel. It's Jesus who is shaping my dreams. He's shaping my ambitions. He's shaping my desires. He, Jesus, he, he really is the greatest, the, the greatest joy. He really is, Paul's saying, my greatest treasure. He's my great delight. He is everything to me. This is what Paul is saying here. Maybe you can think about like the, the heart of this passage, what you're seeing in these verses as, as Paul saying, Jesus really has become enough for me. I, if I have Jesus, I really am good. Like I really am. I, my heart's full if I have Jesus. If I have Jesus, I really am okay. I love how one commentator, uh, how he described these verses. He said, what, what you're seeing in this passage is, is this for Paul, to have Jesus is to have everything worth having in infinite supply. Do you believe that about Jesus? This is what Paul is saying here. If I just have Jesus, then I have everything worth having in infinite or endless supply. Like everything I need, everything I really want, everything I really desire in my life, if I have Jesus, I have those things in endless supply. This is Paul. Paul is consumed with Jesus, his glory, his fame, the advancement of his gospel. Now let's contrast that with how many people see their lives with God. For many, unlike Paul, becoming a Christian we see it this way. It's just, it's just kind of like adding one more thing to our overcrowded life. Like, like we see Christianity as just, we see following Jesus as we're just gonna kind of slide Jesus into our life. He's just gonna kind of have that little space right over there. And, and he's gonna, there's gonna be moments where he gets crowded out, but generally he's gonna have a little bit of space right over there. And Paul is saying in this passage, no to that. That is not biblical Christianity. That is not what life with God looks like. Imagine a file cabinet for a minute. M many people think that becoming a Christian is adding one more file to the overcrowded cabinet of our lives. 
This is how we think about life with God. But the problem is Jesus just refuses to be a file in anyone's life. He's just not okay with being a file in your life or in my life. Becoming a Christian is a radical, life-altering moment where the entirety of our life is upended, that the entirety of our file cabinet is trashed and we get a new file cabinet and his name's Jesus. And now every other file in our life then slides into the cabinet. So now Jesus saturates, contains, frames, encompasses every single thing in our life. That's what life with God looks like. Now think about the difference between those two. That that one way of seeing it, as Jesus just a file in our life, is a very compartmentalized way of seeing Jesus. He's that one file in the overcrowded kind of system of our life. But, but he doesn't necessarily mix with that file, doesn't necessarily overflow into parenting. It doesn't necessarily flow into how we steward money. It doesn't necessarily flow into any of these other areas of our life. It's just that little contained system right there, that one contained file right there. The other way of seeing it, Jesus as the file cabinet, is this all-encompassing reality. Like Jesus affects every single thing in my life. Every square inch of my life is defined by Jesus, influenced by Jesus, submitted to Jesus. That is what life with God looks like. Now, let me just linger over this a minute and draw a distinction between two two groups of people. There are religious people and there are regenerate people. Religious people kind of just do the things that Christians do. Regenerate people are people who have been radically altered and changed by Jesus, rescued and saved by Jesus. And there's a difference between regenerate people and religious people. Religious people have Jesus in a file. He's one of the many files. Regenerate people have Jesus as the file cabinet that now is influencing and saturating everything else in their life. Jesus has now become the dominant reality affecting everything else. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now now look at verse 21. Paul says, for to me, for to me. Now now those three words beg the question. If if that's what defines Paul, if if Paul is saying what defines me is Jesus, for, for me to live is Christ. For to me, also ask us the question. What defines us? What is the all-consuming passion in our life? What, what is the point and purpose of our life? What's the biggest concern in our life? What's the greatest treasure? Where are, we, where are we banking on for our joy to be found? Now, I just will you please think about that for a minute? Just think about your own life, just in a really practical way. What are you functionally banking on in your life? What makes your life okay? What are you banking on to kind of make your life joyful and steady and like, what are your overriding concerns in your life? Like when you wake up in the morning, what are you thinking about? What are the angst that you're living with? What's the aim of your life? If you've drawn a bullseye around something and let the arrow of your life fly toward it, what is the bullseye that you're aiming at? What, what, What defines you? Now think about how this works. If money defines us, Money then begins to affect everything about our life. It affects our work habits. We'll sacrifice less or more important things to to gain money, 
right? It affects your work habits. It affects the long hours you're gonna work it. You're gonna be smoothing at work. You're gonna bend the rules to get it at work, right? It affects your thoughts. If money is the thing that defines you, money begins to saturate all of your thinking. You're constantly thinking about how can I get more, make more, keep more. It just becomes the dominant way that you're thinking. Your relationships then become influenced by your desire for money and that, that definition around money. People begin to be seen through the lens of a dollar sign. And we have sophisticated ways of talking about that, like networking, right? It's the nice way to say that. But it's just, we, we begin to see people through the lens that says, what can I get from them? How can I, how can I get money from them? So the question is, what is that for you? What is defining you? What is affecting all else in your life? What is that all-encompassing thing for you? For, you? for to me, that, that those three words are asking us to wrestle through the question. We, we all have to fill in the blank. For me to live is blank. Everyone in the room needs to fill that in this morning. What, what is in the blank? That, that could be popularity. That could be respect. That could be good health. That could be marriage. That could be to arrive safely at death. That could be kids. That could be financial security. To live is blank. Now, Paul is saying, for me, I want to clarify, here's what fits in the, here's what fills the blank. It's Jesus. He is the all-encompassing thing. Jesus, his fame, his renown, the advancement of his gospel. It's, it's why I do everything that I do. It's why I say what I say, why I live the way that I live. It's why I love. It's what I think about. It's what concerns me, what keeps me up at night. It is the all-consuming passion of my life. This is what Paul's saying. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on Philippians, says it this way. Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel, put Jesus at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our, misunderstand, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations, and he asked the question, what are your aspirations? What are the ambitions in your life? To make money, to get married, to travel, to see your grandchildren grow up, to find a new job, to retire early. And then he goes on, none of these are inadmissible. None, none of these are to be despised. The question is whether these aspirations have become so devouring that the Christian's central aspiration is squeezed to the periphery or choked out of existence entirely. What is your central aspiration? Has the aspiration for the fame of Jesus, the advancement of the gospel of Jesus, has it just kind of been pushed out and squeezed out in your life? For to me to live is what? Now I wanna anticipate a question. I want to anticipate uh, somebody asking Paul, well, okay, Paul, I, I see that, that for you to live as Christ, I see that that's your deal, Paul, but why should that be my thing? Why is it that Jesus should fill in that blank for me? I see that he is in you, but, wh but why for me? If you scour the Bible, I think you'll find the Bible addressing that question in a lot of different ways. But I love this particular passage because it, it answers the question in what I think is one of the most compelling ways to answer it. it. When Paul is kind of opening up his life and opening up his heart and showing what defines him, consumes him, you know, he's inviting us into that. To that sort of like, man, hold Jesus as the thing. Fill the blank in with him. 
Now, now why is that, Paul? And I love how Paul answers it. He answers it by connecting Jesus and our joy. That's how he answers it in this passage. Why should you do that? Because your joy is connected with Jesus being the consuming passion of your life. And maybe you could think of it this way. Paul's answer to the question would be this, because with Jesus comes an unshakable joy. Paul, Paul, why should I, why should I have Jesus as the central thing in my life? The, the, the all-consuming, why Paul? Because with Jesus comes this unshakable joy. Look at verse 18. It's right at the center of our text. It's right at the end of the first paragraph, right at the beginning of the second paragraph. And Paul says in verse 18, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Like I'm not gonna stop rejoicing. Joy is what flavors every word in this text. And this passage is showing us, Paul here is showing us that the Bible doesn't divorce Jesus from our joy, then ask us to pick a side. That is not how the Bible talks about Jesus and our joy. Paul is saying no to that. But he's saying this, when you befriend Jesus, you befriend your joy. This is how it works in the scriptures. He's saying it this way. If your joy is in Jesus, then your joy is indestructible. I mean, this is the heart of what Paul's saying here. Why should you trust Jesus like this? Why should you make him your greatest joy, your highest treasure? Because when your joy is in Jesus, your joy is indestructible. You might think of it this way. Paul is giving us the key to lasting joy in this text. And here's the key. The key to lasting joy is to find your joy in the one who lasts, namely Jesus. Like if you want your joy to last, you better be locating your joy in the one who will last. And Jesus is the only one who will last. This is Paul's logic in this passage. In a lot of ways, Paul is, is modeling Philippians 4.4. 4. In Philippians 4.4, 4, Paul commands us, rejoice in the Lord always, be happy in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Now I read Philippians 4.4 4 and I'm like, Paul, but do you know what's going on in our life? Are you serious? And Paul's like, yes, I do know what's going on in your life and I know what's going on in my life. But, but I, I read Philippians 4.4 4 and I'm like, Paul, that seems impossible. But in this text, Paul is showing the possibility of it. He's modeling it for us. He's showing us that, that our joy in Jesus is not, is not just dictated by our circumstances. That our joy doesn't just ride the roller coasters of kind of the ups and downs in life. That there is this unshakable joy to be found in Jesus that isn't just there on the mountaintops and when life's like going just the way we want it, but it's sustained all the way down into the valleys of our life. Paul's showing us that in this text. In this text, he's giving us two examples of his life down in the valley and how joy is sustained. Joy in Jesus is sustained even down there when Jesus is your greatest joy, when Jesus is your greatest treasure. Now, before I kind of unpack these two examples, you might could just use these examples as a litmus test for your own life. Paul's connecting. When your joy is in Jesus, your joy is indestructible. It's unshakable. But if you find that your joy is really shakable, and I found that last night, my joy is really shakable, right? If you find that your joy is really shakable, it leads us to ask the next question. Have we located our joy? Are we basing our joy in the wrong places? Have we made our highest joy things other than Jesus? Has some other ambition, some other big concern crept into the place of Jesus in our life? So just lay that, that litmus test over your life as you hear Paul testifying his own life, how, 
how he was able to rejoice in the midst of hard moments down in the valleys of life. And you see two valleys for Paul, two valleys here. The first one is in verses 12 through 18. And here's what we find here. In Paul's life, Jesus is producing joy even in the midst of suffering for Paul. Even in the midst of suffering, Jesus is producing joy in Paul. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me. Now, before we keep reading, let's just think about this. What has happened to Paul? Paul just says, I want you to know what's happened to me. Now, now what has happened? One commentator says it this way. If you just take like the, the recent past for Paul, here's what's happened. This would include a riot, a two-year imprisonment in Caesarea, an appeal to Caesar, threats on Paul's life, a shipwreck on the way to Rome, being bitten by a snake during that shipwreck, house arrest with restricted freedom, and his impending trial and possible execution. That's all that's happening in Paul's life. I don't know what else is going on in yours, but that's all that's going on in Paul's, right? Now, to put on top of that, just take the totality of the situation. Paul is a uniquely gifted man. He has a unique constellation of sort of gifts by God that has made him in the history of the church one of the premier church planters. That, that's Paul. Paul could go into virtually any city in his day. He would go there. He would start talking about Jesus, debating people about Jesus, and people just started meeting Jesus. Jesus started saving people. He'd find enough of those people who had met Jesus and been rescued by Jesus. He would start a church in that city and then he would go to the next city and do the exact same thing over and over and over again. This was Paul. Paul is, is probably the premier church planter in the last 2000 years of Christian history. Now think about that for Paul. For a mega gifted church planter, Paul is in prison. Now think about what prison would feel like to that mega gifted church planter. Sitting in prison would be akin to Mozart living with his hands tied behind his back. That, that's how it would feel to Paul. It would be akin to, to Tom Brady getting his right arm cut off and just having to watch football, right? This is Paul sitting in prison. Now I hear that and I think this, surely, I mean, if I just, if I'm Paul and all that's happened to me and I'm sitting in prison right now, I know what would happen to me. I, there's a good chance I would be sinking right into a lot of self-pity. I would be beating my chest and there would be a lot of woe is me going on in that prison. That, and that's what I would be expecting of Paul. Surely that's gonna come out in Paul, right? Surely he's gonna have a lot of woe is me happening in his heart. But, but look at verse, or look at the next verse. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me? And then he goes on to say this, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul's like, I don't even care what's happened to me because what's happened to me has served to advance the name and the fame of Jesus. Paul's like, man, I'm in prison and I've gone from being like a traveling church planter to a prison church planter. That's what I've done. And now I'm talking about Jesus in these chains and people are meeting Jesus because of these chains. And Paul's excited about that. He, he's, he hasn't sunk into self-pity. His joy is being sustained in there. Paul's looking at his life and he's looking at his chains and he sees his chains, but then he looks up and sees the advancement of the gospel and knows the gospel isn't in chains. He sees his own suffering and then looks at the gospel and realizes the gospel isn't suffering. And Paul looks at the gospel not suffering and the gospel being unchained and advancing. And Paul rejoices at that. He finds great delight in that, although he's suffering personally. Now, this passage shows us the ways that the gospel is, is advancing. 
Paul says there's two ways the gospel is advancing because of what's happening to him. One you find in, in verse 13. And we see there that the gospel is advancing through people hearing about Jesus. Verse 13. So that because of what's happened to him, the gospel is advancing so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, the imperial guard would be like the group of sort of elite soldiers who are directly connected with Caesar. And it's these soldiers directly connected to Caesar that are responsible for Paul. They just take their shifts. They, they are literally chained to Paul. They're on their shift. The next one comes in, he unchains. The next one gets chained and he stays with Paul. And you just got this rotating shift of these imperial guard people, soldiers, that, that are chained to Paul. And Paul's looking at this and he's thinking, this is amazing. I've got a captive audience to preach to now. These people can't get away if they wanted to, right? This is how Paul sees his life. And by the end of this, he, he's preaching Jesus to these soldiers. Soldiers start meeting Jesus. And by the end of the letter in chapter four, verse 22, Paul signs off by saying this, and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul's like, man, it's, it's not just confined to the imperial guard anymore. The, the imperial guard is now taking it into Caesar's household. And it's the very household of Caesar that the gospel has now made it into because of my imprisonment. Paul's looking at that and saying, yes and amen. I'll take prison any day for that to happen. This is that sort of unshakable joy that he has. So you see the gospel advancing through, through people hearing about Jesus. But you also see the gospel advancing through people boldly heralding Jesus talking about Jesus, speaking about Jesus. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. D.A. Carson in his commentary on Philippians says it this way. A whiff of persecution sometimes puts backbone into otherwise timid Christians. And that's what's happening here. People in, in Rome are scared. They don't know what's gonna happen to them. But all of a sudden they see Paul in prison. They see a man willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. They see a man literally willing to die for the name of Jesus. And you know what that does to them? It inserts steel into their spine. It refreshes them. It gives them fresh boldness to open up their mouth regardless of the cost to talk about Jesus. Paul's imprisonment is making evangelists. Now, just like it's refreshing the believers in Rome, why don't we just let that refresh us this morning? Let's just let it, let, let's let Paul's example impart fresh boldness into our own timid souls. Walter Hansen wrote a commentary on Philippians. He said it this way, many words can be spoken in human discourse without the slightest risk or need for courage. But speaking this word, a Christ-centered word, always requires courage. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that has proved to be true in my own experience. When I talk to people and strike up you know, conversations with people, as long as it stays up here, we're talking weather, we're talking sports, we're talking all the daily kind of shallow stuff, there is no risk. That, that does not feel threatening to me. It doesn't feel like it, it's a risk. It doesn't feel like a stretch. It doesn't feel like I need any courage for that moment. But in that conversation, when there is an obvious moment where there's a door, and, and, and in that door, this conversation could dip down and go down under the surface and find Jesus down there. 
When that door opens and the conversation can turn there and dip down into that territory, I don't know about you, but in every one of the, I've been following Jesus for 25 years. And still in every one of those moments, I feel fear. It feels like I'm risking something in that moment. I, I can feel this timid part of me say, just I, don't, don't do it. What are they gonna think of you? They're gonna think you're an idiot. I, 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 every time I still, I'm 38 years old, following Jesus 25 years. And every time I still feel that. I still have that in me. So can we just let Paul help us this morning? Can, can, can we, you know, one of the things about courage is courage is, is contagious. That's how courage works. And can we just allow the courage of Paul to, to just seep into our own lives this morning? I, the next time that you're, you're in that conversation and there is an obvious moment, this could go toward Jesus and you're gonna feel scared in that moment. Can, can you just see Paul sitting there in prison suffering for Jesus' sake, willing to die for Jesus' sake? Can, can you just picture him there in prison and allow his, his sitting in prison to get us over our petty fears like, what's that person gonna think about me? How are they gonna perceive me after that conversation ends? Can we just let Paul help us like that? Like if, if you need courage like I do, I just wanna invite you and recommend and commend to you, study the life of Paul. Take people, read biographies in church history of those who have laid their lives down for the advancement of the gospel. So study those people, study the life of Paul and ask the, the, the Holy Spirit to blow in you fresh encouragement, fresh boldness. And, and if this morning, like me, you find that so often you are timid and lack courage, let's just acknowledge that before the Lord. Let's repent of that. Let's ask the Lord to, to bring into us and blow into us that fresh courage that we so desperately need. But then look at verse 15. Not all of these new sort of emboldened evangelists were for Paul. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former, these people preaching out of envy and rivalry, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now think about what Paul's saying here. Paul is sitting in prison and the very, the very Christians that his... His imprisonment is infusing new boldness into are preaching Jesus in a way that is then inflicting damage upon Paul. It's wounding Paul. Now, we don't know all the circumstances of that, but it seems that, that in the way that they're preaching, they are stirring up trouble for Paul. They're likely cashing in on kind of their newfound platform. Like Paul's gone. We got on the platform and we're cashing in on that. And Paul in prison is feeling his influence wane, his reach diminish. He's personally being hurt by these envious evangelists. Now, how would you respond if you're Paul? Man, I'm ready to draw some blood if I'm Paul. Like who's gonna die around here, right? But that's not how Paul responds. Look at verse 18. What then, he says. That's a way for Paul to say, I couldn't care less if I'm dying in here. I couldn't care less if my reach is diminishing. I couldn't care less if my influence is waning. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. 
Do you see that sort of buoyant hope in him? Now, now why is Paul's joy indestructible? It's because his joy isn't tied to his fame, his influence, his big dealness, his church planting success. His joy is indestructible because his joy is tied to Jesus, the fame of Jesus, the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. That's why it's an indestructible joy. When your joy is in Jesus, just like it is for Paul here, your joy becomes indestructible. Now hear this next statement. Paul's passion for Jesus made all the difference in the world when he actually suffered for Jesus. Are you seeing that? I can, if you come in and out and you kind of do this thing that we do around and you have no passion, no desire, no love of Jesus in you, it is going to be no help to you when you suffer. But if you have this all-consuming passion and his name is Jesus, it makes all the difference in the world when you suffer for Jesus. Because when your joy's in Jesus, your joy becomes indestructible. Jesus was producing joy in Paul as he suffered. And here's the second and last thing. Jesus produces joy in Paul, in death and in life. Look at verse 18 and beyond. Yes, and I will rejoice. That's the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, Paul says. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. How do you know if, if for you to live is Christ? The next phrase, because for Paul to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, this means uh, fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is better by far. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. When I read that, here's what I think about Paul. Paul would be the most frustrating person to try to frustrate. Paul would be the most frustrating person to try to frustrate. Picture yourself as a Roman guard. You're part of the Imperial Guard. Like your job is to frustrate Paul. Your job is to make Paul's life misery. That's your job. And you look at Paul and you're like, Paul, okay, your life is gonna be, it's gonna be sucked down the drain, Paul. Your life is over. It's over. Paul, here's what I'm gonna do to you. I'm gonna throw you in prison. Paul looks at you and he's like, you would do that? You would seriously put me, that would be awesome because if you'll put me in prison, you're gonna be chained to me there's gonna be a captive audience. You can't get away from this. And here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna start talking about Jesus and by God's grace, Jesus is gonna start saving some people in here and there's gonna be a revival breakout in prison. So you just keep me in prison as long as you want because the, the, the gospel of Jesus is gonna go forth. It's gonna advance. And I'm gonna be a happy and content man in that prison. So go ahead, log me up, I'm game. And so then you go back to the drawing board. We're gonna scratch that, Paul. We're gonna add, a little, actually, we're just gonna add a little something to that. It's not just gonna be prison any longer, Paul. It's gonna be prison plus some things. Paul, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna not only throw you in prison, but we're going to turn some of these Christians that have been with you and around you, we're gonna turn some of these Christians against you. 
That's what we're gonna do. We're actually gonna help them inflict you with wounds on the outside of prison. So that while you're sitting in this prison, it's gonna be absolutely miserable for you. And Paul's like, you mean my brothers are gonna be preaching the gospel out there? My sisters are gonna be heralding Jesus out there? And people are gonna be meeting Jesus out there? If that's happening, if they're preaching Jesus and they're slandering me, if they're preaching Jesus and in their preaching of Jesus, I'm diminishing, my heart's full. You actually couldn't make me happier in this moment than to say, I've got brothers and sisters out there preaching Jesus. So yes, let's do that. Let's, let's go ahead and do everything we can to stir them up to preach Jesus out there. So then you, you look back at Paul and you're like, Paul, okay, we're gonna scratch all that. We're not gonna do the, the prison thing anymore. We're not gonna do the turn some Christians against you thing anymore. Paul, here's what we're gonna do. We're, we're uh, actually, we're just gonna kill you. That's what we're gonna do. And Paul's like, are you serious? You would actually kill me? Because if you would kill me, do you know, if you would, it would actually be gained for me. I know that feels crazy when I say, but it would actually be great. I'm not trying to escape anything. I'm not running from anything in my life, but it would actually be gained for me. Because if you would just kill me right now, I would get to see face to face this one that my life has been tethered to, this one that I've been all about for all of my life, this, this one that I've been consumed with. I would get to see Jesus, my great treasure and my great joy face to face. So if you want to go ahead and kill me, I, do we have to wait till tomorrow? Can we do that today? And, and then the, the prison guard looks back and, and says, all right, actually, Paul, we're not going to kill you. We're, I think this would be the thing that makes your life most miserable. No longer kill you, uh, Paul. We're actually just going to, we're just going to let you live, Paul. You mean you would let me live? You would see, you're gonna, if you let me live, you know what that's gonna mean? It means I'm gonna keep wringing my life out for the glory of Jesus, for the advancement of the gospel. I'm gonna wring my life out so that the, the people of God, the, the church of God can progress in the faith so that they can find new joy in Jesus. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give my life to that end for the people of God to become everything that God has designed them to be. Can you imagine trying to frustrate that guy? See, what, what Paul is modeling in this passage is when your joy is in Jesus, your joy is indestructible. It's an unshakable joy that Jesus gives. And this sort of indestructible joy is what happens. It's the fruit of a human being pulling back the arrow of their life aiming it at the fame and the renown of Jesus and letting it fly. And by God's grace, may we be that sort of a people, Stonegate. Let's pray together. I wanna give you a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And you know, when I, when I think about a text like this, I think it's worth saying that this sort of an all-consuming Jesus is everything, that 
that's sort of a way of seeing and living and feeling. That, that doesn't happen apart from profound experiences with Jesus. It doesn't happen apart from profound experiences with the cross of Christ. So can you just see Jesus today hanging on that cross? Can you just, can you just allow that to wash over you? Jesus in your place for your sin, Jesus absorbing what you deserve, the wrath from God the Father that you deserve, him receiving that and taking that. And then because of Jesus, you are now receiving everything that he deserves, the warmth and the affection of God the Father. Just like the waves crashing in, can you just allow those to sweep over you this morning to remind you in a fresh way, this is Jesus, the one who has given his all to you, the one who has laid down his life for your sake and for your good, for your joy. This is the one who is looking at you and saying, well, will you make me your all? Will you fill in the blank with me for, for to me to live is Christ? Will you put me in your blank? And listen, this is a journey for all of us. And I'm praying that, that you're willing to get on the journey of this. Last night I was talking about this text with my son, Caleb. And Caleb looked at me and says, Dad, would you be able to rejoice in prison? Like what, what if you went to prison? Would you be able to rejoice? And I just looked back at him last night and said, man, it would be so easy to say yes right now. But Caleb, I have no idea. I'm just praying that God would be making me into the sort of man who could do that. that that's the journey we're on. So, oh God, by your grace, will you, will you take us down the road of that? Will you make us into the, the sort of people, the sort of men and women who like Paul, our joy is so firmly rooted in Jesus that our joy becomes unshakable. Oh God, would you do that? Would you make us those sort of Christians, those sort of people? God, where we're timid, give us courage today. Where we're weak, would you empower us today? God, would you help us today? And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.